0: Hello, and welcome to A Chat with Uma, with me, your host, Uma R. Chatterjee. On this podcast, I bring together all of my roles as a neuroscientist, researcher, board certified mental health peer specialist, mental health advocate community builder, and a survivor with lived experience to bring you honest and unfiltered conversations exploring our true human experiences in their fullest form. Every week, I'm bringing you conversations bridging the gap on all things neuroscience, psychology, mental health, lived experience, advocacy, psychedelics, and more. This is a space for raw, unfiltered truth to truly explore ourselves for who we are and how we are. I cannot wait to connect with you, answer all of your questions, and co-create this with you. Welcome to a chat with Uma. Hello, my beautiful friends, and welcome to another week of a chat with Uma. I am so beyond thrilled and ecstatic to share this episode with you for so many reasons. But first, let me get into who this is, and then I'll just ramble to you about why I am so just beyond excited and honored to have this conversation So today's episode is with the amazing Dr. Ana Maria de Souza, also known as OCD underscore science on Instagram. You might be familiar with her if you were in the OCD world. Though this episode, for all intents and purposes, is not just for people with OCD or researchers studying OCD. This really is just an amazing conversation for anybody interested in Neuroscience cognitive neuroscience psychology mental health and really the state of research and the intersection of lived experience and research so Dr. Ana Maria de Souza is a Brazilian cognitive neuroscientist who is passionate about bridging the gap between researchers, clinicians, and the public. She has completed an undergraduate degree and a master's in psychology in Brazil and moved to the UK to pursue a PhD at the University of Cambridge with some of the most renowned OCD researchers in the world. She is committed to translating brain research into publicly available treatments for OCD and empowering individuals to make fully informed choices. And my goodness... Can I tell you that she delivers on those fronts in such powerful ways, not only through this episode, of course, but through her own work in her own science communication and advocacy and, you know, hearing her bio and hearing about her, I think, number one, just reinforces and instills in me our shared mission and our shared values and how much we align and that really, really shows in this conversation and I am in just so much respect and awe for the way she shares so honestly and openly and you're definitely going to hear this I don't want to give spoilers and give it all away but she is just someone who really inspires me as a human as a scientist in the way she shows up in this very oftentimes rough and binary and stigmatized world And it's just in service of so many people, of course, with her work as a researcher, but also with her advocacy and with her science communication and the way she really wants to bridge the gap just like me. And so I was so honored to have her on the show to talk through her very extensive experience as a psychologist, as a neuroscientist, how her training evolved to get her to start studying OCD and all of the misconceptions that most people in the field face when coming into this diagnosis and understanding and really learning about her background, her lived experience that informed her empathy and her understanding and her interest in psychiatry and mental illness to begin with. And then talking through just such exciting new research being done on the neuroscience front for OCD, talking about one of the amazing papers that just came out about glutamate and GABA imbalances, which you'll hear all about, as well as hearing about a lot of unpublished or soon-to-be-published data that you're going to hear here first, which gives me so much joy and lights me up as a researcher. And just this really awesome conversation about the importance of science communication and consuming research responsibly and disseminating research responsibly and just everything that aligns with my values and drives me as a human. And so thank you so much, Dr. D'Souza, for coming on the show. And without further ado, let's get into this amazing episode with Dr. Ana Maria D'Souza, aka OCD underscore science. Dr. D'Souza. It's so exciting and such an honor to have you on the show today for so many reasons, mostly because, I mean, hello, scientist, scientist, and Mm -hmm. your work, and not only just your work as a scientist, but what you do for science communication and creating a space to disseminate research and just, you know, create a space for empowering people with OCD, people in the community is just so beautiful. It's something that really inspires me. And I mean, that's how and why I reached out to you to be on the show because I would love to talk about so many things about your work and about OCD and about, you know, the amazing, like, super cool papers I'm very excited about, but also just how you came to be who you are and how you show up in the world and the work you do. So first of all, welcome to the show and thank you so much for being here and giving us your time.
1: (laughs) Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I really want to start with your story and whatever you feel called to share, because I truly, I mean, I believe as scientists, as people who do this work, there's generally a reason why we do the work. And specifically I feel when studying OCD as as a topic and as a subject that can oftentimes in the research world be not as understood or stigmatized because of the misunderstanding around OCD, I usually find that there's a very compelling reason that someone came to this work. So yeah, I'd love to know, what inspired you to start on your academic path as a human and and how you got to being the cognitive neuroscientist you are today?
1: So that's always, yeah, a difficult one because there are so many reasons. Uh, first of all, I think I always wanted to study the brain, uh, but not just the brain. So why do people react to certain situations differently? How do we make choices? And I was someone that since I was a little kid, I've struggled with anxiety. So especially uh, generalized anxiety disorder, but especially performance related. So God forbid I had a 9.9 at school. I would be ruminating over that 0.1 that I, that I didn't get. Just always being a good student and, and performing well. So that was something that I wanted to, not to understand myself, of course, but I wanted to understand how people act differently. And for that reason, when I started uh, deciding which course I was going to undertake, I was in doubt if I wanted to do psychology, neurology, psychiatry or biology, because I had this idea of, I want to study brain and behavior. And in researching that, I realized, no, it's actually uh, psychologists don't have to be all on the clinical side, as sometimes uh, people think, we can uh, go to, to research, and I thought I would be more empowered, actually, uh, by studying psychology, that would give me a deeper understanding into into the mind. And I do appreciate the clinical side for that as well, because a lot of researchers, that we see sometimes see their their participants as just brains and forget that there's someone underneath that that brain uh, that has feelings, and I find that having this uh, a little bit of clinical experience also helps me as a as a researcher um, just to understand my participants, and that's one of the things that motivates me with the page as well. Is that, yeah, I'm not just taking information from you. I want you to know why I'm doing that, because the reason is we do that for our participants and for people with, with the most different conditions. So yeah, long story short, that's how I got to psychology, but I always knew it would be something more related to um, academia and, and neuropsychology.
0: Wow. I love the way you shared that because, first of all, thank you for sharing about your own experience growing up and how that just developed this extra level of interest and empathy and just understanding humans and the ways they struggle. And I think you touched on something so important that I think people not in research might not realize, like just the vast number of disciplines that exist. And oftentimes they're very siloed. And like, you know, there's clinical psychology looking at things from a very specific lens. And then there's, you know, neuroscience and all the different forms of neuroscience that are looking at people from different lenses. And then I I feel like so much of the future is bringing those disciplines together to come at a human being and the experience from different angles and work together to bridge all of our work rather than like I'm looking at it this way. You're looking at it that way. We're going to progress separately, like coming together and be, and, and not only that, but you being a person who has so many disciplines under your belt. So I'd love to know more about, so you mentioned clinical psychology Are did you get your doctorate in clinical psychology to like in theory be able to practice, but also do the research or how did that play out?
1: So that's a good question. Uh, maybe people have guessed from my accent, but yeah, I'm Brazilian And in Brazil, psychology is actually five years. So it's a very long course. And since your third year, if I'm not mistaken, yes, since year three, we do clinical internship. So actually, when we finish the course, we're already able to see patients. So I'm not, um, now that I'm living in the UK, I didn't do a doctorate in clinical psychology. So I can't see patients here for, yeah clinical uh, treatment, but I did have my office for two years, my private practice Sorry, for two years in Brazil with a psychiatrist. And I have done internships at hospitals and especially focusing on cognitive behavioral therapy. So we still have, um, I, sorry, I had uh, at the time some experience uh, treating patients.
0: Wow, that's okay. And then so how did you transition from that to then working, I guess, in my perception in a lab and doing the research and kind of like gathering the data, like how did that
1: transpire? So, um, as I've mentioned with the whole uh, anxiety for grades, I was always a very uh, proactive student, let's put it this way, Uh, which means that also different from uh, the UK or the the US, I believe, I'm not too sure, we can work as research assistants uh, as undergrads. I know here in the UK, at least, um, universities are very careful so that students are not um, are not committing too much time to other uh, activities other than their studies, but I used to, the Department of Psychology which I, ah, would actually joke, sorry, that's a mark there, would actually joke that I was in every lab's Christmas party because I volunteered for so many of them. So I've worked with professional counseling, um, for example, Uh, so professional orientation, I mean, diagnosis, development of questionnaires and like psychometrics lab, neuropsychology, ambulatory, anxiety disorders at the department of psychiatry. So that's how I always had one foot say more in the, the clinic and one in research because I knew that I wanted to do neuroscience and psych, psychiatric disorders for sure. And this interlink with measures of yeah, neuroscience and brain related um, measures. Okay. And then mm. where
0: in this did you, And maybe I'm jumping ahead. So you tell me in chronological order how you want to talk about this, but where did you start studying or, you know, finding an interest in OCD in particular, or also anxiety disorders, but particularly OCD, and then also moving into the neuroscience side, because that's a whole other world of skills. And that's, I mean, that's why part of what you do is so amazing, the amount of skills that you have.
1: Thank you. Uh. But yeah, actually, just little bits of skill uh, here and there, but I wanted to explore uh, as much as I could. So one thing that I did from the very beginning was um, I got associated to the Department of Psychiatry at the university, and it was the Childhood Anxiety Program. And there, at the time, so this is pre-DSM-5, OCD was still uh, characterized as an anxiety disorder, so we would still get... uh, OCD cases. Of course, I was an undergraduate student. I wasn't treating them, but I was listening to the psychiatrists and yeah, just collecting uh, questionnaire data and things like that. But always anxiety in general because of my own uh, generalized anxiety disorder as well. So it was something that I always liked how I could communicate with, with people that had anxiety disorders because they would tell me a sin syndrome if i was doing the clinical interview and I would do that like yes yes i know and then if you're exactly like that and the person is how do you know i was like yeah because i actually get the same so <laughs> so that was uh, oh you've taken this medication me too how does that work for you and the faces of people like they just illuminate by seeing that look that person that is researching me uh or interviewing me actually feels the same so It's not that, yeah, you are the words that I hate the most, crazy, or anything like that. It's just I was lucky enough to have the appropriate treatment, and hopefully we'll get there uh, for you as well. So, I was a little bit more on anxiety until I got to my master's, at which point everyone in the department of psychology was thinking, who's she going to go with? Now, since she is... Tried every single lab in this university, and then I decided to go for a very different one, which is a biosignal lab. With my um, say, so my master supervisor was the the head of this lab, which was focusing more on skin galvanic response, heart rate variability, and electroencephalogram, which is my expertise. So I'm the EEG person, and. That was my first attempt actually at, uh, with the EEG. So I did my masters in combination with this, um, psychiatry, um, laboratory on anxiety disorders and EEG in psychology. And then for the PhDs, but still not specific to your CD for the PhD, I wanted to do, uh, to come up to the UK. Um, there's also a personal story to it, but my husband is Australian, so we needed to find some common ground between Brazil and Australia. That was that was a difficult one, so we decided the UK, and and just by reading uh, the biography of several uh, professors, I just fell in love with Professor Trevor Robbins. He's yeah, a, a very big name, but a big, big person as well. And the universe aligned, I think, all of the stars so that I got a position with him. And that was my first, actually, deep, um, say, my, my start in the OCD world. Uh, it was before, because of his expertise. But I just loved yeah, the interplay between... Because the name of his institute is Behavior and Clinical Neuroscience. Which to me was everything that I could possibly want. So, so and when they end, the whole lab is more focused on on OCD, which in the end could have been more of a perfect fit for me than than it was. So I hope I answered
0: that. Oh, you absolutely did, and I have like fifteen <laughs> questions. I'm like, where do I even begin? I'm also like, you and your husband—that's a whole other story. <laughs> but. Okay, so I'm so curious. You came in with your background. First, actually, let me say this. With the empathy that you were able to share with the people you were working with throughout your work, Previously in, a, in the clinical setting, I just want to highlight and uplift that. And also, thank you for being so open and so brave to do so because I think so many people know in this field, especially as someone who has OCD and who's been on the patient side and who also does the research side, that especially in academic settings, there's so much stigma in terms of disclosure and to be for you to be able to create that space for you know the people you're working with to relate to them and help them understand that you're also a human being and you happen to have a job and have a skill set but you're also a human being who understands i don't necessarily think like the person doing the work needs to like that's a requisite but when that is part of the experience it's so it's such an opportunity for connection and for normalization so i just want to thank you on behalf of the people that you worked with and i know that you made a difference in their lives so i just wanted to say that and then in terms of you going to the UK and then joining your lab that in a, that studied OCD. I'm so curious to know what was your perception of OCD when you first like read about the lab description. Like, did you like did, what did you think OCD was, and has that changed since working in the lab and starting to do this work?
1: Definitely. So that is one thing that I hear a lot. So everyone actually says the same thing. Of course, I don't blame the university when we're studying, don't have much time for every single condition. But even as a psychologist, you don't get, uh, you don't talk that much about OCD, um, at school. And I embarrassed to admit, but I thought as a psychology student, I didn't have that much interest in OCD because you just hear, ah, oh, yes the organized uh uh why why are you doing that it it's really horrible to say and i'm only saying that and i hope people understand that now like i don't possibly no no of course (laughs) this is you talking
0: about the stigma and the lack of understanding that exists in the field across the world and you your understanding was a byproduct of the lack of understanding not because you were an ignorant person so i that is the intention (laughs) of asking this question so please continue but just know you're not being judged at all
1: uh but yeah exactly because we don't talk that much of course the teachers try not to show any prejudice but if they just read the diagnostic criteria, sometimes it didn't feel as much suffering as the other disorders when you're hearing about them. So someone talks about depression. Everyone identifies that or has someone in the family who has depression. It's like, Oh, imagine feeling like that. And then your heart just goes for that person you know, of extreme anxiety, which I used to feel, and then I understand schizophrenia, but OCD was like, okay, what if I, may? I must be annoying and difficult for you to have to do all these things but but you're not sad or or anxious it it was very difficult to relate uh and we don't have as many uh cases when you also because of the stigma so it was just when i started studying ocd that now i've become the most like you have no idea if someone tells me i'm a little bit ocd one day, Uma, you find out that I'm in jail because I will have lost it with someone that said that. I mean, I'm disclosing it for the future if I'm ever in jail. It will be because of that. Because it's absolutely not uh, not the case and the suffering, the things I've seen, especially now working at the highly specialized uh, service, is, yeah, it's just not fair the way we learn it. Absolutely not fair.
0: You're so right though in that it's not it's not fair and it's just when it I think OCD carries this unique stigma that not only is it not understood but it also has this misconception of being a quirk of being used in the vernacular so flippantly as you know oftentimes a positive adjective like I'm so OCD about cleaning so I'm really good at it and I love it and look at how perfect I am like it just even does more of a disservice to just, not only is it an uphill battle to actually justify it as a disorder, but like what it actually is and how people are so fondly associated to it. So I just really applaud you for your honesty and the perception of the way you switched and the way you had to, you know, that you even came into the space as someone, to my knowledge, without the lived experience and still found that empathy and that understanding and are such a staunch advocate for it now. And so I'm very curious when you came into interfacing with your lab and you saw that as part as the specialty, what on the surface level, like inspired you to. to then gain an interest like was it that you really liked the pi and you and because of that description you understood ocd was something else or was it like part, part by learning about the lab you understood ocd more like how did that shift for you to get you to dedicate your career to studying this
1: that's yeah a great question and this one i have to say was not academically, uh, it wasn't an academic change, it was by seeing um, patients. As I saw a little bit of myself, of course, I don't have OCD. I wouldn't dare to uh, to compare. But the strength, because people know they have, they are carrying their daily routines, all they have to do, plus the weight of the obsessions and compulsions, and they still say no no but but it's okay i'll just have to do it and and they just keep going with yeah with their lives and how patients are also so uh interested in helping with research so we don't see i don't have that much experience of course but some other conditions people are not as enthusiastic and i saw like that desire of helping no, we need to participate because I've even heard people say it's not going to be more my lifetime, but for next people, uh, <laughs> it also gets me a little. Uh, I'm going to do that to find some way. But it's just that the person is already on 150% of their energy levels and they're still there and giving. whilst others are saying, Why are you tired? You didn't do anything all day. It's like, I mean, you don't think that obsessing all day is exhausting? right like anyone would prefer to be at work carrying weight if necessary than being at home feeling like that so i think it was it was really seeing the the strength and resilience of people like dealing with all of that that just yeah flipped uh for me and now i'm just so not in love of course because it's a terrible condition but in love with the people
0: Conversations like this, I think, really restore my faith in humanity. And I'm sure it's for people who are listening, too, because I think especially just coming fresh off of the International OCD Foundation Conference and being just amongst so many people doing this work, as well as the people who live with it, of which I am both. I think there's this feeling sometimes of like it takes someone so special to in my opinion, at least to actually dedicate their life to this disorder, to this debilitation, to be this um, committed to supporting people, especially when they don't have the lived experience. Because again, of the uphill battle of, you know, how does one get invested in this disorder that has such a uniquely um, uncomfortable stigma around it to even be considered like legitimate enough or interesting enough or the people like recognizing people's debilitation. enough, I think especially in clinical settings there's more of a normalization of people with lived experience than becoming clinicians and starting to do this work to support people because they understand what it's like or having a you know loved one or something but i don't know to me the people who come into it you know purely from yes empathy but also from a you know professional perspective and then get almost hooked in because of understanding how important it is to support people with this with OCD. I don't know. I just really, really, really respect people. And I know that I'm not the only one. So thank you for sharing so much of that. And I am now I would love to know in your words, what you would conceptualize to be OCD and a lot of the misconceptions that you oftentimes face when discussing your work and, you know, just the way that you conceptualize from your own perspective and i know everyone has their own perspective but from yours of what obsessions and compulsions are and kind of that cycle because i think that framework will be really helpful to then um, discuss your work and everything from your lab after
1: so first of all every time i say i work with ocd to a new person invariably if they don't say, "Oh, I'm a little bit OCD," and they'll say they know someone that is, or OCD is that one where people are cleaning things and I don't know, walking without stepping on the lines—I think something like that—and nowadays to say like, "No, it's just it's much more than that," and I usually people only start paying attention to me when I mention this most severe cases that I've seen. And people are like, oh, I didn't think it could get that bad. And then, like, their faces just change because they think it's funny that the person just, yeah, cannot eat if the food has touched this surface. Uh, And it seems like, why don't you just stop it? And then you give an example of, well, why don't you stop your diabetes? And then you're like, ah, yes, yes, you're correct. So just like it is very very frustrating to to discuss and then you also have a lot of people that feel they know how to how to cure it so I've, i'm especially um i get especially frustrated with some health services because when patients get to the highly specialized um clinic where we are now they have had so many bad experiences that it just it breaks your heart um I hear things like, have you tried gardening? I'm like, oh my God, that's the Nobel Prize right there. The person just found the cure for OCD. And I've been trying other ways. Gardening, that's it. And then, of course, gardening didn't work or or a hobby. You You just have to do more things and people are still there. So the way we conceptualize OCD in terms of from the evidence that we have behavioral neuroimaging is one of the theories proposed at least by our lab uh assigns more to this one is because of an imbalance uh there is an imbalance between go direct and habitual systems in the brain so we could think of ocd as something evolutionarily adaptive mm-hmm. the behaviors are usually there to protect you you should check if you turned off the, the stove, or if you close the door, or if the food's not contaminated. But at some point, these actions become more habitual. And then in my work with uh, electroencephalogram, I have actually found that there are potentials, multiple potentials in the brains of people with OCD that are stronger than in people without OCD. So the um, habitual areas are a little bit more active. So. You've already checked, for example, but as with habits, they are automatic and everything automatic escapes our attention a little bit more. So there's also that component that it will happen involuntarily. And it's easy for us to say, have I done that? If I ask you, Wilma, when you took a shower today, did you wash your left foot? Probably like, yeah, probably. But are you sure? I mentioned so because we all have a routine on how to take a shower, If you notice, everyone will start by the same side and finish by the same side. So you think you have because it's part of the routine, but the memory sometimes gets foggy because you're just not paying attention to it, not because of actual uh, memory issues in in people with O C D. So those habits are so involuntary that that they take over to the point that they're not adaptive anymore. But you still have that sign there. So I usually uh, say that people with OCD and with anxiety disorders have some sort of broken alarm in their mind. It's like, danger, danger, danger. There's something that you need to check. right? And we know which brain area is responsible for that. And then your motor areas start trying to, to fix that in some sort of way. But it's just broken. So actually, ideally, we would just ignore the alarm. But that's much easier uh, said than done so we do uh work with i know it sounds horrible to just yeah uh, reduce to that but in terms of brain uh imbalance between go directed and habitual um areas no no that's not that's (laughs) the book that's
0: honestly one of the best (laughs) descriptions i've heard and i'll tell you why and this is you know, hugely why I'm a neuroscientist or why I'm, you know, in the process of continuing to train in that way, because there's so oftentimes when it's so important to describe the symptomology and the themes and, you know, the different ways OCD can present. But in describing it as such, especially from advocate standpoints where they're just they're disclosing their lived experience. If we're hearing just one perspective or, you know, one patient's experience with their themes, it's very easy for someone who's not familiar with OCD to become just entrenched in that. For example, one of the biggest ones is contamination. If someone has indeed superseded the, you know, typical stigma of OCD being a quirk, and they do realize it might be a disorder, then most people end up thinking that it's, you know, this, you know, cleaning, excessively cleaning, or excessively checking the stove, or whatever has been perpetuated in the media as typical OCD. But I think descriptions like yours really take it back and describe the underlying, you know, general, like, physiology and, you know, the cycle of what OCD entails to where that at it kind of describes how it can latch on to quite literally anything if there is a salient cue if there's something within ocd or in someone with ocd who there's any level of doubt or any level of hypervigilance about something it can become an obsession and then that that habitual behavior in order to cope with said uncertainty or said distress or whatever like can become a compulsion. So your description is exactly why one of the many reasons why I have you on the podcast, because that is such an important vantage point. And that leads me to, you know, we can go so many ways, different or different directions of getting into all the things I want to talk about. I guess I'll start with, since you already just started talking about the brain areas involved and EEG, I'd love to know your, I guess, journey in starting to work with more of the neuroscience, you know bridging into the neuroscience of OCD and kind of the different, the way you conceptualize the, you know, I guess the anatomy of OCD or like the different parts of the pathophysiology and kind of what vantage point you interact with that work as.
1: So yeah, as you said, uh, it is important, of course, to to recognize that there are different dimensions, but again, uh, as you said, one of the problems of, yeah, relationship OCD and then contamination or harm or aggression is that then they all become different disorders. And it's very difficult even to have studies that address them, uh, and treatment. So we always try to go to the, to the root because of course I understand the suffering, uh, is unique, but we do believe that the root of all the, all the dimensions is the same. Right, so they are all there because of doubt, and that's actually a point that I didn't uh, mention before. But intolerance of uncertainty is something that we always measure in any of our studies because it does seem to have uh, a major impact on this hypervigilance, and then of course, this will produce anxiety. So, I for one subscribe to the idea, and people get sometimes a little bit angry. Uh, I'm gonna say that, but I think that OCD and anxiety are dissociated, meaning anxiety is OCD, I don't, not taking anxiety from OCD, but I don't think you have to, that they could start the same way. I think, yeah, you can have OCD and then anxiety will be a product of, of OCD, but you don't just get, um, you know, symptoms of OCD when you are, when you are anxious, for example, um, but in terms of brain, what I, it was interesting because we know areas that are implicated in OCD, they are quite famous, orbital frontal cortex, ventro, uh, lateral and ventromedial prefrontal cortex. Then, what my supervisor would uh, joke, that's my favorite area, which is the anterior cingulate cortex, which is this one of error monitoring and conflict, the, the alarm one. And I like that because of anxiety as well. But at some point, just when I uh, arrived in Cambridge, I spent the first few months just reading. And we read things in uh, in the literature of OCD as patients don't like uh, making errors, right? Because errors are threatening. So you try to do everything perfectly and in the most efficient way. But then we also see that, okay, you're doing that, but now Your actions are not goal-oriented anymore. They're actually habitual. They are not adaptive anymore. So why are you perseverating? That's me thinking. So I wouldn't understand perseveration. You don't like making errors where you're perseverating. There's something there. And you're getting the external feedback that you're wrong, and we used to do deterministic and probabilistic reversal learning tasks. People know they're wrong. And then you could even ask in the end, did you understand the rules of the task to the patient? Was it uh, was it clear for you or you're making mistakes because you didn't understand? Oh, no, no. I knew that the circle gave me more money than the square. So why did you keep going for the square? Because I, I felt I had to. And there was, mm, there's something there and I could be simplistic and say, oh, people, like, they just don't, don't like money or or they're not paying attention to the task. But then I started reading a little bit more about uh, motor literature, and this yet yeah, just right feeling, for example, and just the idea that external feedback doesn't seem, and we still have fights over that in our lab, but I insist that external feedback doesn't seem to be as uh, relevant for people with OCD as the internal one. So even if the environment is saying, you're making it a wrong decision, like adapt. And this brain area is screaming, they adapt. Your internal feedback has to be how you're perceiving the uh, the action. And sometimes it's just right feeling comes from a number of times that you have to do a certain action. And then I shifted. It. It's like, why is no one looking at motor areas? Could it be that there's a relationship? And for some reason, and I'm not comparing, so please... <laughs> But I, I read a little bit about the literature on Parkinson's uh, just by by coincidence. And then came to my attention, we're not checking motor areas, right? Maybe the person is aware cognitively, and it is the case most of the times, but motor, areas are much ne- motor neurons are much faster, so they will tell you to do an action even if the anterior cingulate cortex is screaming. So I used to joke, it's like, yeah, the hand is going to press something, to do the compulsion, the interior singular cord is saying, no, 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 don't go. But that go signal is stronger and you still go. So you get both of the both the motor uh, signal and the danger alarm at the same time. And that's when I started focusing a little bit more on the supplementary motor area and all this thing. If habits are habits, it's because there is a motor component there that is telling them to go without your awareness. And that's why it's so difficult. Like, why don't you just stop it? Well, because I I can't. My brain is telling me to to do that. So now my new favorite area is the motor motor area.
0: Oh my gosh. I... I love your brain. (laughs) I love your brain. I love that you are so not only interdisciplinary, but you're coming into these scenarios. And like you said, you have debates in your lab endlessly, but you through perceiving human action it's that translation of human action human psyche like why can't people stop and that leading you to looking at the you know correlates in the brain in terms of the areas perhaps even deeper like the connectivity and the function and structure and all of those things and i have a quick question before we move on because i'm curious for your perspective um in terms of mental compulsions do you think the physiology or you know the mechanisms driving those um are in your opinion? I know you don't know the answer per se, but do you think they're equivalent to physical compulsions in terms of the motor areas um, action in them?
1: I have debated this one a lot, and I might retract myself one day. Uh, Because of course, I don't know the answer for sure. But I think if we see imagery studies, for example, we do know that just thinking, imagining yourself performing a motor action will engage those same areas. So uh we do have uh we do have evidence even that inhibition of thoughts engages motor areas as much as inhibition of actions. So there is definitely something there. It might not be the only explanation, but motor errors will be implicated in sense of agency all of those those things aside from performing the compulsion itself
0: i love your answer and when you said you might um retract your statement later. Well, that's why you just come back on the podcast. And also that's the nature of research, which you are definitely going to get into in terms of like how much research is changing and how, you know, as much as people with OCD, I'm just kind of joking, but kind of not want certainty and want rigidity. Like that's the opposite of research. So we'll get into that after, but I love that you said that. And that I think that your answer just makes a lot of sense to me. And it's kind of validating in a way of with mental compulsions. I know oftentimes people in their experience their their physical compulsions are um less difficult in treatment to start you know not doing and with with erp but mental compulsions oftentimes i know for me especially feel like well it's just thinking like how do i stop thinking like i'm a human so like how can i stop doing mental compulsions it feels so automatic but i know that in the way it's treated and just like the psychoeducation of it all like at the end of the day um having a thought is you know, kind of automatic, but engaging with said thought is an action. And so in your framework of even trying to inhibit a thought or to engage with the thought and that being um, related correlatively at least to the motor area, that makes a lot of sense and helps reconcile that kind of feeling like it's just automatic, but it's kind of not. So thank you for saying that. And I... I, I, mean, I definitely, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. There's the paper that just came out that's so exciting. But before we get into the paper, I kind of want to just lay the framework for the audience, especially in terms of different you know modalities of studying the brain and neuroscience and um, cognitive neuroscience and imaging and EEG and all of that. And I just kind of, if you can share with us the general scope of what your lab does and then what you do in your lab and kind of maybe some of the, key findings and assumptions and hypotheses that your lab is like looking at and works with. Mm
1: -hmm. So yeah, this paper that you mentioned uh, was actually led by a colleague, uh, Dr. Marjan Biria. So she, I'm the EEG lady, she's the uh, spectroscopy lady. But basically what we're trying to do is understand OCD uh, as a whole, right? Which is very difficult, of course, it's very complex. Disorder, but we were our participants. Like, I need to thank them so much because I used to bribe them in a good way uh, with chocolate and Polaroid photos of them. You were in the EG. so two sessions, four hours each, through very long days. Um, but we tried to squeeze as much information as we could from them because otherwise, it just. Uh, That's why I think people get frustrated with research, and I understand. We just have, like, portraits of what's happening right now. So we need to try to get information without burdening participants too much. Um, So what we're trying to do there was see neurochemicals in the brain with clinical questionnaires, uh, self-report questionnaire, behavioral tasks of habits and cognitive inflexibility, for example, and uh, inhibition. And I was doing that with the EEG. So I was actually seeing all these motor uh, areas, how people are able to stop their actions and the whole inhibitory control with the, with the EEG. We're trying then to get to a framework of OCD where we can see, so we're not discriminating by, uh, I want to subgroup of checkers or a subgroup of people with contamination uh sessions. No. Our participants had OCD, that was the um the main inclusion criteria, let's say, and we're really trying to understand as much as we could. So it was quite interesting uh for me then this is not published yet because I tested participants in Cambridge and in this uh, NHS facility where I'm working as a, as a postdoc right now, I end up with two different neuro um, profiles of OCD patients by, uh, not by accident, but by a lucky surprise. Say so Because the patients that were coming to Cambridge, although everyone had OCD, they were somewhat less, uh, impacted by the disorder. They were presenting higher degrees of, um, they were f- more functional in a way. Uh, so we'd have medical students that had OCD, um, uh, or people that yeah, had the disorder for maybe less time. So it wasn't as, as distressing as these others that went to the NHS and there was a clinical trial. So you have that different profile of those going for research and those going for treatment as well. And interestingly we see uh we were able to see that yeah these more severe patients in NHS had different brain responses to my EEG tasks than the ones in in Cambridge. And this could only be achieved of course because I had a simple size of more than seventy uh participants. I would test them twice, um or three times. So we're really, really trying to get uh OCD and models of compulsivity. So I don't work with that. But my supervisor also has uh animal models, also animal labs, but monkeys and and rats and then models of compulsivity. Um because we just need to understand what compulsivity is and then be able to apply that to to people.
0: Uh, I have like 50 questions, where do I start? Well, I just wanna highlight what you said at the end as well, just for people, because I know so many people are interested in becoming a researcher and like don't even know where to start in terms of different parts of OCD or just in general different parts of a disorder or experience and Mm -hmm. I love that your lab to my from what I gather is bench to bedside it's like very much from the most like Very nitty gritty cellular and animal models, developing like the most ways to manipulate and test very specific hypotheses and do things that we can't do in humans, in terms, at this point at least, in terms of manipulating different circuits and cells, all the way to looking at the actual human being and using the technology we do have, which is hugely what you're doing. And not only, you know, assessing them as a person and talking to them and gathering their data and their self report, but also looking at their brains and looking at as much as we can, like the connectivity and the responses. And so that's super cool. And just for anyone listening, like there are many different ways you can engage in research. And sometimes you have a supervisor or lab that kind of does all of it and you get to contribute to a certain part of it that then comes together to create a fuller picture. So that's what I'm hoping to do with my PhD and part of the labs that I'm rotating into. But that's a total aside. I... I don't know if I'm allowed to ask you this. So you tell me if like you want to wait till it's published no we could talk about it. But the two different profiles that you're finding in two different patients. So first of all, in terms of assessing functionality versus like the more dysfunctional, what I guess, like what criteria determines who's more functional? And I think you mentioned, for example, like med students being, you know, more functional versus is it that maybe they are not able to. Um, I guess like provide them for themselves or engage in careers or like how is that dissociated and then like what are your preliminary thoughts on on what could be driving that difference in in populations
1: that's a great question um but we used on um, in terms of functionality we didn't use a specific measure uh we do have the quality of life measure, so Not quality of life, sorry, uh, disability measures. So how much do you think your symptoms are impacting social life, um, professional studies and family and friends? So we do have that, but then of course, from uh, clinical interviews, we know, for example, I've seen people that would only leave the house to come to the, to the clinic for the, for this trial. My, they would say like, I had to drop out of school. Uh, I cannot live by myself, uh, or I don't leave the house. Like very, very severe, severe cases where many people, yeah, they couldn't work anymore, which is something that when I was in university, I didn't even think that you wouldn't be able to work. And now I see how common that is. Unfortunately, the people are just like at home all day very, very debilitated. And you have this other profile that for some reason has been protected by other factors I we still don't know what they are, but the symptoms are there, but the person can still go to university and do things. And then I really don't know what started first. If maybe going to university protected them in a way that the symptoms didn't get that bad or if it's the other way around, but they develop more resources. And one of these findings that's not published yet, I was very surprised at. So I studied this um, component called the error-related negativity, which is basically this alarm that we are talking about in the anterior cingular cortex. It's a very uh, simple uh, component. They measure that from reaction time tasks so and so you have a task you have to respond to the arrow if the arrow points to the right you press right if the arrow points to the left you press left if the arrow is red though it means don't press anything but they are so fast people make mistakes it's normal and the computer is actually um, rigged in a way the it will adapt to your responding to make it more difficult for each person and then you go there and press the red arrow And we all have that same reaction. Mm -hmm. It's normal. Everyone does that that little jump, Uh, which is good. That's your brain saying, hey, you've made a mistake, adapt. Mm -hmm. Good. Everyone has that. Everyone should have it. Absolutely great. But in OCD, it's like, hey, you made a mistake, adapt. And it's just so strong that the person gets like, okay right and that disrupts uh everything so errors become much more aversive Uh, we well the literature is not completely convinced but there was some sort of common sense even with papers uh that said otherwise that we do know this error related negativity is a biomarker for anxiety and uh ocd so this uh heightened error monitoring system but it was thought that maybe it would correlate with symptom severity. So having that more you feel the person is more severe. But what I found actually was that this subgroup of the less uh disabled patients had this component higher, meaning they scream was louder. Yeah. <laughs> exactly from yeah, from our face, I can see that. So I thought oh, this should be the opposite. But then we been like analyzing the, the remaining of the data and study. We do notice that this component is kind of screaming. Say you're in a battle, you're going to lose the battle. And then the general scream for reinforcements So bring more soldiers. And then the cavalry arrives because you actually uh, screamed louder. So that's what it's doing and saying prefrontal cortex, please. We need some more cognitive control here. We're making mistakes. So send resources to us. Whereas the group that was uh, more disabled, they still have that this component. So this little wave, let's say a higher than people without OCD. But it was like, hey, reinforcement, please, in a way of almost hopelessness, like, yes, we're screaming for help, but help is not coming because cognitive control is not helping anymore. So there seems to be something about recruiting cognitive control and this way of trying to compensate for errors, which is exhausting. Right? That's why a lot of high functioning people will see at the end of the day might be three times more tired than others because you need more cognitive control because you're fighting two battles at the same time, the task at hand and all this monitoring on the side but by asking for this cognitive control you are actually being able to perform your tasks where a disorder group was not recruiting uh, this compensatory mechanism as well so i hope i made myself clear uh, so clear
0: i'm just you saw my <laughs> face i'm like holy crap like that's okay i have th- i i have curiosities and thoughts on what you just talked about because and this is just you know shooting this shit with you because I so when you talked about kind of the you know in terms of assessing functionality and being there being people who are by quality of life terms and by disability terms are, you know, disabled and they're not able to function. And it's, it's so, so debilitating overtly. And then there are people who have OCD oftentimes severely, but they, you know, by standards of functionality of, you know, being able to exist in the world seem to be more functional for whatever reason. I, what came to mind is that I have been both of those people. I have been the person that, you know, I, I had a 1.83 Gpa I had undiagnosed severe OCD and and other things and I literally like couldn't go to a store like I would be there for eight to ten hours a day and I, I couldn't move I had to leave school and I didn't know this at the time because like I couldn't even participate in class probably because of the number of compulsions i had to do to even exist and be able to take in information and it was just that's the tip of the iceberg but that i was so i I used to sit in the dark i couldn't even turn the lights on because i had you know obsessions about um what if i spend all my money and i go broke and it was just it was really it was like by very very typical standards extremely debilitating i couldn't function i couldn't do anything and of course i at the time I would imagine I would score extreme because when I did finally go into treatment in terms of the Y box, I was at extreme and I had still become more functional by standards and still I was at extreme. And then through treatment and where I am now, and I'm very open about this, so this is not new for anyone listening to the podcast, I score moderate to severe, oftentimes more in the severe range because I have definitely recovered largely, and have done ERP for a lot of my physical compulsions and for the things that really kept me debilitated in the sense of Disabling me in terms of functioning in the world and like taking care of myself and existing and doing things. Um, but even to this day, I still, and largely because of a PTSD comorbidity and lots of other things, I'm still um, in the process of even working on becoming more functional and, and not scoring to moderate to severe on the Y box. And so I now kind of fall in the category of what you're talking about, like on the surface level and, you know, by standards of what looks like on the outside, I'm, you know, just graduated with my master's after having a 1.83 GPA and not not being able to function. I'm about to start a PhD program. I've worked in labs. I've you know, presented. I have things I'm doing and it's, I'm functional. And yet I still have severe compulsions and oftentimes they're mental. And so what came to mind for me in terms of like, again, this is just an end of one. And this is just like putting myself in the perspective of what you're talking about. I wonder how much of the difference in the populations you're looking at might be and this is going to be hard to say because I know if people don't listen to the whole thing, they're going to come at me. Uh, but in terms yeah. of compulsions and what they look like in terms of the net um, overt way they interface with the world in terms of does it actually in certain, I, I would never think compulsions are ever actually helpful and act, they're, they're debilitating and you know we don't want to do them. However, the the content of the compulsion and sometimes to a certain degree, what happens from the compulsion in terms of what it does for the work you're doing or the thing you're doing for example like you know oftentimes this and this is why it's so hard to say people think like people who check things all the time they just happen to like have better outcomes in terms of doing things more perfectly and doing things whatever and at the end of the day like we don't want to be someone who has a disabling amount of checking compulsions and there's obviously a cost benefit analysis and it diminishing returns however there's probably a part of checking where like because there is checking at least in the beginning like you are checking for accuracy it just then becomes compulsive and becomes like you know completely useless and there's no point doing it and you're just debilitating yourself and you know in a way of like needing treatment what i'm trying to say i guess is that the the group of people that seem to be more functional and i wonder if that's where perhaps themes or maybe even just the the compulsions that they are doing happen to be something that is definitely disabling in their human experience, and they takes up too much of their time and leaves them exhausted. At the same time, though, um, their compulsions don't necessarily impede their way that they get to like participate in the world because there's some like perceived benefit, at least at the beginning of doing them versus other people's compulsions for whatever theme that stuck with them has resulted in them literally, you know, being locked in their house and not being able to engage with the job. And so I guess, I don't know, that's just my outward rant in terms of like what perhaps is contributing to this difference. And then there's also what you said after in terms of like the um, increased amount of, uh, helplessness in the less functional group and the higher alarm, but anyway I don't know if any of that made <laughs> sense but I'm so curious on
1: your thoughts <laughs> Yeah, to be fair I don't really know how to because when we are analyzing by things or dimensions of OCD we need a much larger sample size, so I wouldn't be um, I wouldn't have the power to, to analyze for that One of my hypotheses though is no, not a hypothesis. It's actually part of the data. This group that was more disabled had uh, higher levels of depression, clinical depression, so significantly more depressed. So if you're more depressed, it's more difficult to, to ask for help. It's almost as, yeah, it's that weak help, but you just you don't even expect uh, that anymore. Whereas the other group, if you're still a little bit more anxious, you're still fighting. Uh with more strength, let's say. So I think depression did mediate uh, those those results. In this subgroup, we didn't find these differences uh, in terms of uh, statistical differences. But the longer you've had the disorder uh, and untreated, the worse it is. So more more depleted your your resources are. So a lot of these uh, participants that came to to Cambridge were younger ones that they had just been uh, diagnosed, for example. So you're still in that phase where you are, you're more actively fighting that. It would be very, I had thought of doing a study by by dimensions, but it's just so difficult and also they seem to change, which is why we have this idea of one common route because people can have multiple themes throughout their life so sometimes it's easy if we could find one thing that that works for for everyone but this would be yeah very interesting uh, hypothesis say people with mental compulsions for example although they are horrible and very uh distressing they're easier to hide and that's what my uh, participants used to say so unless you're so distressed and visibly distressed by them they can still do their compulsions was uh outside so that yeah, that's sounds disabling in this sense.
0: Oh, it's so disabling and it's almost it, not that like, OCD is OCD is OCD, but having mental compulsions and then like being able to hide it and then number one, just like not being seen in your suffering by people around you to even like validate that you have the disorder and you're in treatment and then also being in treatment and you know unless you're with a super trained um almost like mind reader OCD therapist who can who knows about mental compulsions how easy it is to get away with doing them and mitigating your suffering in in session so it looks like you're getting better that was my experience and i also just from what you said in terms of the data showing that the longer one has had the disorder and especially untreated the more you know the the correlation to the severity of the illness i think that's just such, I mean, that's like the icing on the cake of why this advocacy and awareness is so important it's not just raising awareness of the disorder so that people know i mean that's so important but also how much suffering and unnecessary i mean i guess we can't control that we you know we have ocd or we get ocd or whatever but to it's it's even more unnecessary suffering when the disorder gets worse and people suffer longer and um, have a worse case oftentimes because of how unnecessarily long it takes to get the diagnosis and treatment. So thank you for saying that. And I'm so just, unfortunately, I guess, excited about the data in a sense, like validating that necessity. So so it's 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 a weird thing to be in research and be like, I'm so excited for this result in this, you know, project. And it's like about something that's so debilitating, but it's because we want that data to be able to help people. So I completely get it. And especially when you said earlier, and so, wow, you are sharing so much exciting information to me as a researcher um, about stuff that hasn't even been published. And I'm so excited to hear about that. (laughs) And that, I guess, also feeds into, well, the paper that just came out. And I I mean, I'm going to let you sum it up and you tell me just like what the findings were and how that came about and the significance, because it's so hugely significant to developing treatments and further understanding the um, pathophysiology and the way that this disorder works. So please please take it away and tell us all about the new nature paper that came out
1: mm-hmm. thank you uh and yeah well something to look forward is that in this paper of course uh Dr. Biria mentions her results uh, with spectroscopy but all these patients had the EEG as well so we can actually compare the the results of the spectroscopy with with the EEG and they had fMRI as well. So I'm saying that these participants were the most amazing people. Uh, so we have a good, um, a good understanding of OCD. But basically, what what she did was we recruited 31 uh, participants without OCD, 30 uh, participants with OCD matched by age, gender. And they were asked to go into this scanner, which I was a pilot for her so many times. <laughs> it feels just like the, uh, the normal um, magnetic, um, resonance scanner, but this one has a much stronger magnetic field. So it's a seven Tesla and that's why this study also, um, it's much more impactful. It's because in the UK, I believe we only have seven of those scanners. One of them is in Cambridge. So the magnetic field is really, really strong. And that allows us to actually differentiate the metabolites in the brain. Because usually studies on um, on substances will be more uh, PET scanners, but then they have the whole radiation, which makes them a little bit more difficult. And in OCD especially, so Dr. Beer has a chapter on spectroscopy in OCD, just summarizing findings, which was written before this study. Most studies were and I think this is the first study, if I'm not mistaken, but I don't think I am, with 7 Tesla. Uh, so all the others have 3 um, three Tesla, which is yeah, not nearly as strong for us to be able to differentiate glutamate and GABA and glutamine as well. And now I've seen even comments, curiously, yesterday I saw that there was, it was on Facebook uh, and there was a press release of this paper. And there were a lot of, um, let's say, uh, not so enthusiastic comments uh, underneath the paper. Oh, great news. Chemical imbalances again. Oh, what did you find? Like, this is not news and things like that. And I understand because we have been talking about chemical imbalances for a long time. But we didn't know exactly where they were and what they were. And that's what makes a difference so what she found was that in this anterior cingular cortex which i mentioned before is this uh, alarm area there is higher concentration of glutamate which is the excitatory uh, neurotransmitter so the one that yeah, activates uh, the, the synapses and lower levels of GABA And the same was found for the supplementary motor area, which is this one that I've been measuring as well with the, with the EG. So we actually have a, a correlation there between her findings and mine, showing that this area is also overactive. And just by knowing where it is now in which uh, metabolite is actually excessive, then we can develop drugs that will target these areas specifically. And this metabolites specifically whereas before we talk about chemical imbalance but what does that mean and this is something that i wanted to emphasize uh in uh, with you here if i may is she and i because of the page i've received a lot of messages from uh, people with ocd that of course are interested in treatment and that that's how it should be right it's such a debilitating disorder But what we found is still basic research. So I can't tell anyone to take. So people are asking me, so should I take GABA or should I try to mediate glutamate with this and that? Like, absolutely not. Do what your doctor tells you to do, follow the guidelines. What we found now is a way to develop new drugs, but we still don't know. Because even if GABA uh, is inhibitory, for example, it may inhibit something The It may inhibit transmission, let's say that's already inhibitory. So it actually excites it. So we really need to study these pathways. And I know it's frustrating that we can't translate things to treatment immediately, but yeah, just do not start taking GABA or glutamate because of that. But we are one step closer uh-huh, to getting the treatments. That
0: is so, so important. And thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm not surprised that you're receiving those messages, honestly, because I, you know, anytime I talk about literally anything about OCD or anything at all, like in terms of like dopamine or like D2 receptors or whatever, it's like, oh, so like therefore I should take this thing and I should do this thing. It's like there's so like the it's so interesting, like being in research and the more you get into research and are a researcher, it's like basically an exercise of learning like how much you don't know. Like the more, you just become more aware of like how much you don't know and how much there is to know versus people are like, you know, who are not in research, you just like, I mean, they don't have the education or awareness for good reason to know what it is that like where the findings are in perspective of like the grand scheme of existence. And like, you know, papers are amazing. And especially a nature paper is huge. And that might even feel like if people have heard, wow, nature is this like, you know, it must be like the answer, if it's in nature, like, no, it's just a publication that happens to have a lot of uh, of a reputation for groundbreaking papers. But at the end of the day, like the, the way I try to describe it to people is like, if you think of a puzzle, like a very, very, very extremely complex puzzle, like usually findings are chipping away at building into this puzzle that we don't even know as researchers how big the puzzle is or what it looks like we're just chipping away at a puzzle and sometimes there's a paper or a finding like you had or that your you know your group had that is yes a small piece of the puzzle but it's a piece that kind of orients us to like I don't know. I don't know why a picture of a horse is coming up right now. And then it's like, you kind of see like, there's a a picture of its face. So you're like, Oh, well, I guess I can tell that right now we're in the face part. And that's easier to tell versus like being in all the, the, For I don't know if this is making any sense, but I guess it's sometimes findings are so interesting because it gives us perspective to build upon and it's, you know, hugely informative to the direction of the field and something that we're validating. But at the end of the day, it's still just a result. And like you said, you know, even drugs in terms of even if people are going to develop drugs from what you just said, you're looking at specifically in different areas, what the different transmission levels look like and the different interactions of chemical, you know, activity. But those are specific areas. And then drugs to this, you know, at this point are generally globally interactive with the whole brain and the whole system. So like, what's the net effect of this, you know, you know, therapeutic or that therapeutic or the supplement? Like that's what trials are for. And this is just to inform more targeted approaches to then develop something that might you know, there's just so much there. So I just wanted to bounce off of what you said because it's so, so important. And that's why conversations like this need to happen from people who are doing the work, who have the understanding of where their work lies within the grand scheme of things to the people who really want to understand, because I'm so acutely aware as someone with OCD who, you know, was not a researcher and now am a researcher to know that like we feel so like siloed off and feel like we just we're so frustrated like why aren't there things that are helping us and making us get better and like it wants it helps us to empower ourselves with knowledge and also because OCD particularly is so discriminated against it oftentimes feels like if we can arm ourselves with knowledge and research like this broad term research says that OCD is this and research says that OCD um, can be treated this way it almost like as an advocate as or as a person with OCD validates that oh this is a real disorder and research is studying it and research is finding that it's a brain disorder and it does this this and this and it's very easy to latch on to like findings as absolute fact and findings as this end-all be-all to be able to for you know and i'm saying this again to like understand why people are doing this with compassion and i've I've been there too um it, it just helps us feel like this is real and you know let me just talk about this over and over and over and talk about how this is fact but the reality is that's just not research so i just wanted you to have more space in this conversation to just talk about you know why this in t- this re- this process of research matters why it's important for the layman's person to understand and why we need to communicate our results and just like understanding the nuance of research because you do such an amazing job with your page and with the way you you're talking here so yeah any thoughts on that at all
1: <laughs> thank you so yeah i've become more and more an advocate of um empowering people with knowledge and because i know researchers sometimes like staying in their bubble and using difficult words and at some point when i started with the page i would ask uh people that were reading it like am i being too childish because i don't want to be perceived as, as arrogant or like i'm drawing it for you but people said no no it's it's good because you just you need to be able, now when I teach students, I say the same thing, like, if I'm not understanding your paper and I'm someone that has knowledge on it, how can anyone else understand it? Why are you doing research if it's not for people to understand you? And a lot of researchers will go and see just a brain in front of them and that's it. But I feel like, no, you have to know why I'm doing that. So I was doing the EEG, poor patients heard the same story. 12 times, but I would explain, look, this is the component of when you're doing that. We think that this causes that symptom. Does that make sense to you? And I generated so many hypotheses from there as well. And just by learning from uh, from people in this um, this moment. But I really think like strongly, even at schools, we should have some sort of research mind training. Be able to interpret research because we have been seeing so much of this like fake news now and information and oh we shouldn't take this and everyone is an expert on, on whatever it is without without studying or even people that are really trying hard but they are going to read a paper and it's difficult to to understand sometimes. So I do think that research especially need to explain to people why are they doing that. Also, from a selfish point of view, it gets us better data as well. Because if the person's not understanding what they're doing, most of the tasks that we use, those behavioral tasks, people are like, why am I pressing arrows to the left and the right? Like, is this person just spending my time here? And like, what what can she learn from that? Right? And then it just seems like a joke. Whereas no, I'm actually, this task measures this specific thing. Of course, sometimes we can't say what we're measuring because that would um, bias the results, but people need to know that they are part of something and that if science is taking long to find something, it's, it is part of the process. Um, So that was something that I wanted to, to emphasize as well, is the why basic research is so important. So for this paper, now it has gotten a lot of attention, but if we were there when we were recruiting for this study it wasn't easy to get the 30 participants and we were offering like we pay your expenses which a lot of labs don't have those resources so that was nice cambridge is a nice town uh we pay for your hotel everything come with your family take the day out we give you tourist tips if you want uh because basic research doesn't seem as interesting but now we are conducting the um, And I know it's an area you interested. I'm part of the psilocybin trial with Imperial College London. And for that, the number of people that have registered is huge because it's treatment already, which I understand. Right? Do you want treatment? But we only get to that point once we check the brain and say like, oh, maybe psilocybin will get to these areas.
0: Yeah, or what it's doing and why, like what is psilocybin interacting with in the brain of someone with OCD that is creating different results perhaps that other drugs are not. That's to your point, exactly. And when I describe like what is it, what it is I actually want to do as a neuroscientist and I, I people's eyes often glaze over because it's like, oh, you don't want to like do the trial and like just see what happens like with the drug. Like you want to go in the brain and like cut up an animal's brain and see like what the like what the cells are. How boring. It's like, no, that's literally the point. Like to be able to understand like on a deep level, which is like what why it takes so long to do, like what exactly is going on? And it's just so important. And I also think to your point of disseminating and communicating research, like it's amazing that there's now access to like PubMed and research and the, you know, oftentimes there's even not a paywall for seeing papers and that's so important for people to have access to. But to your point of training, you know, the research brain or the research mind for people, i know most people just look at a paper and they read the abstract and then there's a conclusion at the end of it's not even generally very certain but people interpret it as certain or if if they're really interested they'll go through the paper read the intro read the conclusion completely skip over the methods materials limitations discussion and go straight to the end because you know who who knows who has the time and i guess like like it doesn't seem like it registers that the rest of the paper is important to get to the actual point. But for people like you and me, like it, we know like through journal clubs and through like the work we do, the the middle is kind of the most important because therein it illustrates all of the limitations. Because no research is perfect, no research is definite, no research is certain, and there's always you know many different interpretations or caveats or considerations. So I that's just so important and what you're doing to have nuanced conversations and coming on the show and talking with me and like being able to share your work and be uh, cautious interpretation through your platform. is just so, so, so important. And so in keeping with that theme, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, I, I know this, this is what you do in your lab all day long, but like to do it publicly as an example, like what would you say are different limitations or questions or, um, different interpretations from from y'all's recent paper that are kind of informing future directions to further clarify what you found
1: so uh of course for now which we focused on these uh two brain areas that doesn't mean that we don't uh have to look at others so we actually one of the phd students in in our lab is now looking at the pertainment so try to use um to follow up from Dr. Birri's study, but in this area, there's more related to habitual responding. So we need to see uh, how this goes. And and then understand that, okay, there are these diffi- uh, different uh, chemical uh, concentrations. How can we solve them now? So that's the, the next point. Uh, is it through drugs? But as you said, drugs that we act specifically in the pathways that we want them to act can be a little bit difficult. So potentially, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation is something that is a little bit more focused. It could help, um, fix this imbalance. So now we need to, of course, first, yeah, replicate the findings would be, would be very important you know, there's always uh, some chance of, uh, of error in whatever we do, right? And research is about retracting ourselves, as as I said, and then try to solve this, uh, this imbalance. And potentially they are very important for compulsivity, but it might not solve the whole, the whole CD um, framework. And could be that other areas, or as even I found in this study, in my study first, I thought that I should definitely reduce the error-related negativity, because that is giving the alarm and anxiety, and now I'm finding, whoopsie, that's actually protective. So we just need to keep uh, manipulating those to see what's the best outcome. And most importantly now, uh, we try to work with a more precision medicine approach. So. We understand basic uh, imbalances, but whatever works for one person may not work for the other one. So even ERP, um, CBT and SSR, which is a gold standard, will still have 50% uh, dropouts uh, from ERP. ERP is very difficult. So, okay, it's great if you can do it, you're most likely to improve, but some people will not be able to tolerate the treatment right so we can't just say oh you didn't tolerate too bad that's what works no we need to find ways to get that person to the level where where they can so maybe habit reversal treatment works for some people to diminish the anxiety in the beginning and then they can get to your uh, how do we do to so that everyone can have treatment despite uh, the limitations and difficulties
0: Yeah. And to your point, it's the fact that it's a harrowing statistic that up to one in three people do not respond to treatment at all. And up to 50% of people drop out. Like, it's so. It's equally valid that we're so um, we want to advocate for ERP because we don't know about it and it is so effectual in people and give so many people their life back. And we need so much more for the people who it doesn't fully help or doesn't help at all. And it does it's not a knock on that treatment. It's that people are bioindividual, have different circumstances, and we just need a bigger toolkit of resources for people at the end of the day to just mitigate their suffering. And so this, you know, having you to just be able to here i I think people get a window into the researcher brain through this episode is just the most beautiful thing and i'm so so grateful that you came on i didn't even get to ask you like half the questions that i want to so i'm definitely going to be bothering you again to come back but before we close out i have some questions some rapid fire questions for you just as some to bring it back to the human who's been sharing all of your work so my first question is who is the person behind all that you do and the ways you show up in the world? How would you describe yourself as a human? I know oftentimes we say like, I'm a this, I'm a that, I have this role, I have this education, I have this whatever. But behind that, how would you describe the human
1: doing all those things? Wow, that's a difficult one. Uh, Well, I guess uh, as part of the anxiety, I do have quite a significant imposter syndrome as well so as i'm talking to you i'm already thinking if i didn't say anything wrong or inappropriate or if all the facts were were correct but i think i mostly come with the i really i can't of course i can't say i feel what what participants feel but i i just see people as people and not for data so I think that just makes so much difference uh, in research. It's like, it's okay if you're not feeling right. So don't worry about my research, worry about yourself. Uh, we can do this together. And so it's the empathy really of like, I've been there and I am still there in several things. And it's not uncommon that I cry. During, <laughs> I'm doing something, participants tell me something and I start crying. Uh, because it's just this you know how difficult it is whereas i have colleagues that i once had a colleague that struck me a uh, very hard she looked at a person she said she doesn't look like she has ocd but what does someone with ocd look like uh i then so one participant was rude to us and and i was a little bit upset and she said oh but don't be upset because like she has OCD. It's like, yes, she has OCD. She doesn't have the right to be rude. So it's not like, yeah, it, it, it is, uh, it is a condition, but people are people. And I think that's, that's all really. I'm just trying to be as honest as possible to people and say, yeah, but I don't know this. So we're doing that. Hopefully it works. <laughs> That I just shines yeah.
0: through. It shines through <laughs> your humanity and your care and the reason that you're here doing this work. And you picked a certain avenue and a certain suite of skill sets to be able to help understand this and further the field. But it comes from this person who cares so deeply about people suffering, about empathy, about um people's lived experience across different walks of life and I just feel that so deeply and I know everyone listening does too so thank you for being who you are we're so lucky to have you doing Mm -hmm. this research and making a difference and having your humanity be part of what's infused into the research and my final question is Mm -hmm. what is one thing you wish everyone knew or could hear It could be about anything
1: Mm -hmm say like you're not alone like you're definitely not alone uh and not just yeah through uh i know there's so many groups of support but research is hearing you uh we we are there we will get through this uh we will get through this together that's absolutely certainty for me and i know is all about certainty so saying that um uh, yeah I will not rest not sure if I'll achieve it but I will dedicate my life to this mm. because yeah I know how important it is
0: mm.
1: I will take that certainty <laughs> <laughs> I will take that
0: certainty so I know other people will and Dr. D'Souza thank you so much for your time for sharing about your work about how you came to it letting us see the human behind the research and also just talking through this really, really important research being done for people like me, people who are listening and just also advocating for OCD to so many people listening who don't know what it is and who are also living in that stigma and that lack of awareness. And your work is so important. And I hope everybody goes and follows OCD underscore science on, I'm sorry, just OCD science on Instagram. I'll have everything in the show notes Um, and also just, you know, reads your papers, and reads the middle of it too, not just the beginning and end. And just I can't wait to have you back on the show and talk so much more because there's so much more to, to talk through and ask and we're, you're just someone that really inspires me to continue forth and I just feel such community with you for all that you do. So just thank you, thank you, thank you, I really appreciate you.
1: Well, thank you, it's my pleasure really, think it's been great being here and I look forward to coming back.
0: Y'all, I think you can tell why I was so beyond hyped and thrilled to share this episode with you. It was just so powerful, so cross-disciplinary, so just full of humanity amongst all of the research, all of the work being done by Dr. D'Souza and just... I'm so grateful for her sharing herself in such vulnerable and open ways and just educating us on so much of the incredible seminal research being done from her and her lab. Thank you so, so much for being on the show and for just creating this episode and as a resource for people to give them hope and information and empower them with really responsible knowledge and for all of the dialogue about the nuances of science communication and experiencing and taking in research and I'm just so excited to have Dr. Duzza back on for so many more conversations in the future. So make sure to follow her at OCD underscore science on Instagram to learn about all of the work that she's doing and to just have a resource to take in really responsibly shared information about ocd neurobiology and psychology and all of the ways that the brain and the body and the mind and the environment intersect in relation to ocd and beyond also make sure to check out the orchard registry which is this amazing resource for people with ocd to submit themselves to this platform to then be matched to research studies That are studying OCD so that people with OCD can be of service and people who are studying OCD can be back of service to patients. Research is the future and is how we move forward. So I really encourage you to check it out and to sign up if you feel called to in Europe, I believe. And all of this will be linked in the show notes, so make sure to check it out. And of course, if you loved this episode, please first take five seconds to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it that way you will be the first to receive messages about when the podcast is out and you can stay updated with all of these amazing episodes with these beautiful people who are coming on the show there's so much more to come i'm so so excited also if you could leave me a five-star rating and review That would support the show so much because that would empower this community to grow, to feel safe when they find this show, and to tune in and join us in this journey of exploration and understanding. It would really, really support me in being able to continue this show. So thank you so much for subscribing and rating and reviewing. And lastly, make sure to share this episode with anyone who you think would be interested from any standpoint anyone who would resonate with this conversation, make sure to just take this link and send it to people over text or to share on social media, my posts about the episode or take a screenshot. I would love that so much and would love to share that with the community too. So thank you so much for supporting the show. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to see you next week for another chock full episode as always. and sending you so much love, so much care and just so grateful to co-create this space with you. Have a beautiful week, friends, and see you next week for another episode of A Chat with Uma.